The best movie in 1992 was a Western. And it was a Western unlike any before it. Probably you're familiar with all of the old genre of Westerns with Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and the rest of those. This was a movie for a new generation. And he was that iconic kind of iconoclastic figure, Clint Eastwood, that directed it and starred in it. Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman and Gene Hackman and Richard Harris. The plot of the story is that uh, Clint Eastwood was one of the nastiest, callous gunslingers of his age. He'd been a train robber. He had been a murderer. He had even murdered women and children and robbing trains. But he got married, and she reformed his life. And he settled down, and he had two children, and he was listed living out on the Kansas Plain. But the murders that he had committed haunted him, for you see, he had never been forgiven. You probably remember the name of the movie, Unforgiven. And when there was a bounty in Whiskey Flats for somebody to come and take care of two cowboys that had broken the law there, he, because he needed to provide for his family, then took the challenge along with Morgan Freeman to provide for his children. And then later when Morgan was killed to avenge his death. And before it was all over, Clint Eastwood, the main character, returned to his old murderous ways. You know, murder is the only sin, if you think about it. Murder is the single sin that the victim can never forgive. And this is what haunted him. He had never been forgiven. You know, we know of a murderer in the Old Testament that was in a very similar situation. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and she had conceived. And, of course, he plotted then to murder Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. And then when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet... He was incensed when he heard about a man that had stolen the ewe lamb from the, from the poor shepherd, and then he discovered it was he. And he came under deep conviction, of course. And what did he say? He said, it is you, Lord. It is against you, Lord, only whom I have sinned. And in Psalm 51, one of the great passages on pleading and pardoning, uh, pleading for pardon and confessing sin, he says this, and we know this was against that background. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. And what happened? We know that God did forgive David's sin so that he would not die, but there was a consequence And the child that was born of Bathsheba died. Yet David was still consoled. He was consoled with God's forgiveness. For in another psalm that he wrote, Psalm 32, he reminds us how blessed, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered up. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We know this. We know that we are all sinners. 
And we also, I hope, know that we're all in need of God's consolation and His forgiveness. The focal passage this morning is one of several because there are different aspects of forgiveness in the New Testament. But the passage follows, this morning's passage, follows that event when Jesus is standing by the fig tree. And remember, we covered this a couple of months ago. And after Peter has said, Rabbi, look at the fig tree that you cursed. It is withered from the roots. And you remember what Jesus said. He said, have faith in God. And he led then the disciples in understanding what it meant to have faith in God and the power of faith and the power of prayer. And that has been one of the cornerstones of our ministry of prayer. We pray as we ask praying, we do what, church? As we ask praying, we do what? We don't just hope, we don't just wish, but as we ask praying, we do what? We believe, we believe. And then after that, Jesus shifts gears slightly and he says this in Mark eleven twenty five: whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. This concept of forgiveness in the New Testament really means to send away. It means to let go. It means not to hold on to. If a person owes a debt to you, let it go. It reminds us in the Old Testament of the uh, sin of Israel and the scapegoat. And of course, when they make atonement on that day of atonement, we know that there were two animals. One was to die, a lamb that was to be killed as a sacrifice, but the other one, the scapegoat. The scapegoat, the sins of the people, the high priest laid the hands on the scapegoat and represented the sins of the people, and the scapegoat was let go to go out into the wilderness. And we know that Jesus Christ fulfilled both of those motifs. He was both the lamb that was led to slaughter and did so without speaking. Isaiah tells us that. But he was also the scapegoat. He bore it away. And because of that, because he fulfilled both of those roles, it is only Jesus on behalf of the Father who can forgive our sins. In the Old Testament, there are several words that are used for forgiveness. One of those means to pardon. And that word is used only of God's forgiveness because it represents mercy and gentleness. There is another word that is often used, and it's like the New Testament word, which means to bear away or to carry away. And then there's one that doesn't really mean forgive, but it's used in that context. It means to blot out. It means to erase. It means to destroy. And it's used in many other contexts to say exactly that. But in the context of forgiveness, you're reminded in Psalm 51 that David prays for forgiveness. He prays for forgiveness because of his blood guiltiness. And remember what he says at the beginning of that psalm, which we often quote when we are talking about forgiveness. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out, erase, destroy my transgressions. And later in verse 9, he says, hide your face, O Lord, from my sins 
and blot out all of my iniquities. So the idea of forgiveness for us, I think, is twofold. It is the taking away of our sin and letting go. And when we forgive others, we do the same so that they will be blotted out and erased. You know, Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, the way I look at it or my research this past week, suggests that there were five occasions on which he taught about forgiveness. Now, there were many times that he forgave, but there were five occasions on which he spoke about forgiveness. One of those was in the Lord's Prayer, of course, when we pray that we will, what, be forgiven as we also forgive. When he healed a paralytic in Mark, the second chapter, when they lowered the paralytic, remember what he said to the man as he was lowered. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And then there is a teaching point from that. They accused Jesus of being demon-possessed a little bit later in Mark. And when they did, he responded by saying, there is a sin that is unforgivable. And we will talk about that. So it has to do with forgiveness. And then when he was teaching about what we call church discipline in Matthew, the 18th chapter, and you know how that goes, we're to go one to the person that has sinned, and if that is not good, we take someone else with us, and if they still do not repent, then we bring them before the church, one of the two passages in the gospel where the word church is used. And then after that, then Peter asked the question, how many times do I forgive? And Jesus teaches about forgiveness. And then on the fifth occasion in John, the 20th chapter, after Jesus has appeared behind the locked door and the disciples are amazed to see him, the resurrected Lord, he breathes the Holy Spirit upon them and then he commissions them to be forgivers. And we will talk about that. So those five occasions suggest to me that the passage that we have focused on is not the only dimension of forgiveness. I think there are four things that Jesus taught about in forgiveness that we need to be aware of this morning. Number one is, and it's obvious, God forgives. And when God forgives, he forgives spiritually. He forgives morally. But then he calls us to forgive. And there are three different instances or kinds of occasions where he calls us to forgive. And that passage that we read a few moments ago from Mark, the 11th chapter. He calls us to forgive relationally. But in another place, he calls us to forgive ethically. And then finally, he gives us the task as the church to forgive forensically. That is, to pronounce as though in a court of law and to declare that a person is forgiven. So let's take a look at those four kinds of forgiveness this morning. The first of those is pretty obvious. God forgives. And when he does, he forgives spiritually, morally. So while he is about to heal the paralytic. You remember the story. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And there's some scribes that were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And you know, that's based on an Old Testament principle. And it's true. Isaiah 43 says, I, even I, and the one who wipes out your transgressions. And you see that word wipes out, blots out. I do it for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins anymore. You know, when we look at that passage and we unpack it, what does it say? He says, I, even I, that says, I and I only. I am the one that forgives sin. 
and I do it for my sake. David had it right when he said, against you, O Lord, I have sinned, when he committed adultery and murder. And then God says something very important in that Isaiah passage. He says, and what, what else do I do? I don't just blot it out. I don't what anymore? I don't remember it anymore. You see, only God can do that. And in that instance, as Jesus then turns to the scribes, and they haven't voiced it, it's in their hearts. The passage says, immediately he knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And then he asked them a question, which is easier to do, to forgive sin or to tell this man to pick up his mat and walk and go away? But to demonstrate to you that the Son of Man has power on this earth to forgive sin, then he turned to the paralytic and he said, pick up your mat, stand up and leave, go home. And he did, and they were amazed. And in that, what he did was he demonstrated that in fact, only God does forgive sin. But he was saying far more. He was saying the Son of Man is the one who has the power on earth to forgive sin. You see, I have come from the Father as the Son of Man, and I can do it. So God forgives sin, and when he does, he forgets it. Secondly, we forgive. We forgive relationally, and that's the passage this morning. Whenever you stand praying, and the suggestion is, even if we're in a congregation, you're standing there praying, and you individually, the plural is used there, all of you. This morning, when we prayed the prayer of confession, when Ehab prayed the prayer of confession, each one of us was praying individually to the Lord, and then he calls all of us, but individually to do what? To reflect and to think. And if there's someone that has offended us, we're to do what? We're not to leave the altar. We're not to go away. We're not to do it tomorrow. Right then and there, we are to forgive that person. This has to do, folks, with a very subjective approach to sin and forgiveness. You see, it's an individual thing, and it's intensely personal. We, we feel that somebody has offended us. It's internal and it's subjective, whether or not they've actually sinned. And that's important. They may not have sinned against us. It may be our perception. And whether or not they've repented, we don't wait for them to repent if they have sinned. You see, it settles our heart and our relationship with God, and it prevents resentment from building up in our lives. There's an immediacy about it. It's not like the Sermon on the Mount when you know that somebody has something against you. Leave the altar, leave your gift there, and go be reconciled. This is, we do it immediately right where we, where we are. We don't leave. This morning, if we had a grievance in our heart against somebody because we felt offended, then it is our obligation before God at that moment to forgive that person. It's intensely private. You know, Jesus said, what about prayer? We don't make a show of it. We don't then brag about what we've done. You go into your closet, and this morning as you prayed together, even though we're together, you're in your private closet of prayer. And if you've done that, you don't make a big show of it. You don't go put a guilt trip on somebody who maybe has not sinned against you, but you're just offended by them. And it's, a, it's an act of sincerity. You see, we're first concerned about what? We're first concerned about our relationship with the Lord, and then our relationship with that person. And, and He knows he knows when we pray. He knows when we pray that prayer and ask for that person to be forgiven, whether we're sincere or not. 
And if we're not sincere about it, if we're just going through a rope prayer, he knows it. And did you notice what Ahab said in his prayer? Were you listening? What did he say? This is a hard thing to do. As a matter of fact, it's impossible for us to do. It's impossible for us to forgive in our own natural state. We ask God then to help us to forgive that person. And and therein, it is a cooperative thing between us and God. And he enables us to forgive. And we we forgive relationally. There's a third kind of forgiveness, and that is we forgive ethically. In Luke, the 17th chapter, we read this just before we started worship this morning. He says, watch out, be on your guard. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, then keep forgiving him. This is about responsibility. This is about actual sin. This is an objective approach to sin. Somebody clearly has sinned and everybody knows it. This isn't just the way we feel about it. What's interesting about this is he uses a singular verb. He says, you singularly. He looks at us and if we're the one that is offended, we have a responsibility to go to that person then, very much like Matthew 18, and then confront the person, rebuke the person. And that takes personal initiative. It takes courage to do that. And sometimes we back down off of that. There are three assumptions, though, I think that we need to see behind this passage. I think, first of all, probably that sin has offended us, and we have already in our hearts forgiven that person, as we have seen in the previous, in the previous example. It's also that we're not being judgmental. And sometimes we have problems with that passage in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not judgmental. It's not judgmental when somebody clearly has sinned, and it's obvious. The judgment is in the law. The law has pronounced that person sinful and disobedient. And then we help them take care of that and bring them to repentance. You see, violators of sin must be held accountable for their own good and for the good of the community, and for the good of God. And so he does call us to forgive in an ethical sort of way, and he calls us to individual accountability. And then there's the last example. We forgive not only in an ethical way, in a relational way, we forgive what I call forensically. That is, as though we were in a courtroom, and then a verdict is pronounced. And at that point, the church has the responsibility to declare forgiveness. Jesus has just appeared on the other side of the door. He has just breathed the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. And he says this to them, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain sins of any, they have been retained. What he's doing here is he's giving the church the apostolic power of communicating God's forgiveness. Hmm. I'll say it again. Ben, when you then came to the pulpit and after Ehab prayed, you did this. You exercised the apostolic power of proclaiming forgiveness on God's behalf. It helps us understand a little bit about the, more about the confession at Caesarea Philippi. Remember after Peter confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what does he say about those those keys? Whatever you 
bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. If we do not share the gospel with the people around us today, folks, they stay bound in darkness and sin. If we share the gospel with them, if we share the truth, if we share the key to salvation with them, then we free them as Jesus said that he came to do when he stood outside Nazareth in Luke the fourth chapter. I have come to free the captives. We have that responsibility. As we go and share the gospel, as we witness to others, wherever it may be, we then exercise the keys. Now, part of the keys then is this here. People need to hear that when they have sinned and they have repented, that they are forgiven. Mm. And in Matthew, the 18th chapter, this very same quote is found again. After Jesus has said, we go to people and we ask them to repent, and if they do, we've recovered them, and then he quotes this again. The passage from Caesarea Philippi. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and what is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. You see, the church is the custodian of God's forgiveness. We pronounce God's forgiveness, and we help people to be freed from sin's power and to realize God's forgiveness and to free them from a sense of guilt if they have repented. And when we withhold that blessing, either as a church or an individual, if we withhold that blessing very much like Clint Eastwood in the movie, he had never had anybody that had said to him, you're forgiven. Now, he also had not asked for forgiveness, but you see what I'm talking about. There are people all around us every day that live with the burden of the guilt of their sin, and they never even know that there is a hope of forgiveness. It is a responsibility of the church to let them know that God is willing to forgive them. And then when they do repent, we have a responsibility to pronounce that. Well, some would say, well, only God forgives sin, and that is true. It's true that only He removes the moral stain on the soul. It is only He who can forget sin. We can't. Somebody sins against us, and no matter how much we say, I forget it, every time we say we forget it, we remember it. You know what I'm talking about. It is almost impossible for us to forget until we get to that age where some of us <laughs> forget on a pretty regular basis. But you know what I'm saying? Only God can forgive that way. Uh, we don't forgive in an atoning way. Only Christ is capable of doing that because he was the lamb that was put on the altar and he was a scapegoat that took it away. But what we can do is we can pronounce God's verdict. We can help free people from sin's grip and despair. And we can help restore them to a relationship with God. And it begins usually by restoring the relationship between them and us. We have that responsibility. Some would say, well, Catholics disagree with that. You see, Catholics go in and they then say confession to a priest, a human priest. They confess their sin. And the, the priest does what? He absolves them of their sins. But if you look at Catholic doctrine and you look at the catechism, they are very forthright about this point. They say only God can forgive sin. And official Catholic doctrine is the priest then is proclaiming the apostolic commission of declaring forgiveness. Now, the problem is, you know this, a lot of people in the Catholic Church think that who is it that has forgiven them? The priest. But that is not Catholic doctrine. 
Even Catholics, well, I shouldn't say even, Catholics as well believe what we do, that only God can forgive sin, but we have a responsibility to proclaim that. So what are some of the principles from Jesus' teaching that we gather from these four examples? Number one, it's obvious. Only God can forgive sin. This morning, we know that we're all sinners. And this morning, if you're listening online, or if you're here this morning, and you have never asked forgiveness of your sin from God, the answer is this. He is willing. He is loving. He wants to have a restored relationship with you. And he wants you to ask for forgiveness of your sin and ask Jesus Christ to cleanse you of your sin and to accept him as Lord and Savior. That is the gospel. And he will then, when you do that, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He will fill you with his Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus said the Son of Man has the power to do this, and he never gave that atoning power of forgiveness to a single other person. He didn't give it to the apostles when he breathed on them. That is not what he was doing. Only God forgives sin. Secondly, God will forgive sin. But there are two conditions. Oh, but wait a minute. I didn't think that forgiveness was conditional. It is. It is. What are the two conditions? Well, when he was confronted about being possessed by a demon, he said what? God will forgive all the sins and blasphemies of people. Anything that you do, God is willing to forgive except one thing. And what is it? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That cannot be forgiven. Well, what that is, in my opinion, it is a continued, stubborn resistance to the Spirit of God to redeem a person. And if a person keeps doing that and doing it and doing it, he says that is an eternal sin that cannot be forgiven. So there's one of the conditions. So this morning, if you have resisted and resisted and resisted and have not then ask for forgiveness from God. You are resisting the Holy Spirit's effort to convict you of your sin and draw you to God. If you die in that state, you are eternally separated from God. That's what he's saying. It's an eternal sin. But there's another condition. It's pretty obvious from this morning's passages. And what is it? God will forgive us only, only if we forgive others. And there's plenty of biblical basis for this. This morning's passage, Mark the 11th chapter, the Lord's Prayer. After that, he gives a commentary on the Lord's Prayer, and he says, if you forgive, your Heavenly Father can forgive you, but if you don't forgive, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. Luke says the same thing in his version of the Lord's Supper. And in the parable of the wicked servant that comes right after that passage in Matthew 18, where he talks about church discipline. He gives this story about the, the landowner forgiving a servant of a great debt. And he is joyful about that. But then he turns around and he finds one of his servants that owes him a minuscule debt. And he tries to extract every last penny and says he's going to throw him in prison if he doesn't. And when this is reported to the landowner, the landowner says then that he is going to punish him, you evil and you wicked servant. I forgave you, but you were not willing to forgive your servant. That's what Jesus says to us. As we have been forgiven, we must forgive others. The bottom line is he means it. He means it. Sometimes we sidestep it with 1 John 1, that if we confess our sin with him, he will forgive our sin and he will wash us of all of our unrighteousness. Well, that allness, folks, does not cover having a stubborn heart. You see, if we come to the Lord and we ask for Him to forgive us and we have a stubborn heart and we're not willing to forgive others, 
then we're not being sincere with God. And the scripture is very clear. He will not forgive us. He will not forgive us if we do not forgive others. You see, 1 John goes on to say this. We need to love our brothers if we're going to be in right relationship with God. And if we're out of relationship with our brothers, and if we have a stubborn and proud attitude, then God will not forgive us. How can God ignore our disobedience and our unforgiving hearts by blessing us with forgiveness? He will not do it. And that's a hard saying. And we need to stop being duplicitous in our faith and selfish in our faith if we have the attitude that we can come to him and ask for forgiveness and not forgive others. Hmm, that's a hard saying. What about salvation? You see, God's unconditional forgiveness and salvation, that's different. We're saved unconditionally, not based on the works that we perform. And we are unconditionally forgiven in that sense. Because when he forgives us, it's not based on our works that we do. It's not based on a condition we perform. So we have that kind of unconditional forgiveness. We're forgiven only because Jesus Christ paid the price. But when we are saved, if we do not forgive others, if we continue to have sinful, stubborn hearts, the Scripture says that He will not forgive us. He will not remove that impediment unless we're willing to do it with others. There's another principle, I think, from Jesus' teachings, and that is we forgive. Why? We forgive because we have been forgiven. We find this in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we do what? Forgive those who trespassed against us. Freely you have received, freely give. This reinforces the, it's reinforced by apostolic teaching that says much the same thing. In Colossians, Paul says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And there's a last principle from Jesus' teaching. And we need to be willing to forgive how much? Endlessly. Seventy times seven are in Luke 17, seven times in the same day. Freely we have received, freely we must give. So what are the reasons to forgive? What are the reasons to forgive? Well, number one, we're told to do so, obedience. Number two, because of love's imperative. God loves others and he forgives them. And if he forgives them and if we love God, then we will forgive them as well. There's a third reason, and that is for self-help. We should never let the root of bitterness grow up in our hearts, Hebrews tells us. We should never let pride embitter our soul. We need to humble ourselves and be willing to forgive others. It is good for our self-help. A fourth reason for discipleship. We follow Christ's example, He forgave, and we teach others as we model it how to do so. And then there's stewardship. Freely we have received, freely we give. And then there's unity, household wholeness. The body must be reconciled one to another in the family of Christ. And finally, there's a principle of fairness. If we expect God to forgive us, it is only fair as he forgives one of his children that we as his children will forgive other children as well. You know, there are a couple of, there's one objection that we always have about this, I think. Well, I just can't let it go. Somebody offends me, I just can't let it go. Well, you know, that's a pretty good statement. 
It's an accurate statement. Because what is forgiving? What is forgiving? It is letting it go. And so when we say we can't let it go, we're being pretty accurate. And I'll say it again, as Ehob said in his prayer, this is a hard thing to do. No, it is an impossible thing to do. In our natural state, we are self-focused. In our natural state, we are not merciful and loving and kind to others. We are fallen, we're broken. But only God can enable us and empower us to do so. And so we come to him in prayer and we not only ask for our forgiveness, but we ask for his, ability, his power to enable us to forgive others. What are the benefits? Well, it's pretty obvious. The healing benefit of forgiveness. You see, it dispels the bitterness that we have in our heart and we do not then become deeply, deeply, corrosively bitter against others. It brings unity to the body. It brings personal growth. You see, as we grow in our capacity to love others, we grow in our capacity to love God. As we grow in our capacity to forgive others, we grow in our capacity to receive forgiveness from God. But the most important reason, folks, the most important benefit is we make this our ambition, and our ambition is to please the Lord, and He has told us to do so. Let me close with this. This morning you may be, may be saying, well, you know, God won't forgive me because of the things that I've done. You don't know my life. <laughs> you don't know some of the things that I've done, a person might say. Well, let me tell you, folks, your preacher says the same thing. There's some things you don't know about me that I don't want you to know about me. Okay? We're all sinners. There's some things in our lives probably that we say we don't deserve to be forgiven. God will forgive any sin except one. And that is what? Rejecting Him. Think about it. Think about it. The worst king in all of Judah's history. For about 50 years, he put up idols. He sent his children through the fire and practiced child sacrifice. He committed all kinds of immorality and sin, and he taught others to do the same. And by the way, he was the son of a great reforming godly man, Hezekiah. And God jerked him up. He brought the Assyrians to take him into captivity, had rings in his nose dragging him into captivity. And sitting in that cell in a foreign land, Manasseh finally came to the point. He came to his senses. And guess what he did? As evil as he was, he repented. And what did God do? He restored him. Now, it doesn't make up for all the bad things that he did. And his influence continued through his son. But folks... If God can forgive an evil king like Manasseh, think about Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go there because it was the most wicked nation in the world. I know that if I go there, they're going to listen and they're going to repent. And I don't want them to be saved, Lord. Wicked, 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 wicked. And you know what? When finally God got him there and he walked through the streets from one side of the city to the other and he proclaimed the word of God, 
You know what happened? Nineveh repented, and at least for a short season, there was a revival, and God did what? He forgave their sin. There is no sin that God will not forgive except rejecting Him and His Holy Spirit. And our Lord Jesus Christ Himself set the supreme example, didn't He? While He was hanging on that cross, as he looked out at the people that had spat upon him and the people that had driven the crown of thorns into his flesh and as he was bleeding and as he was suffocating to death on that cross, he mustered up with almost his last breath, almost with his last ounce of energy, the ability to pray. And he said what? Father, forgive them. For you see, they don't know what they're doing. If the Lord Jesus Christ can forgive those who executed him, put him to death on the cross, we follow his example. We follow his example as his disciples. And we ask the Lord to give us the ability and the power and the insight and the wisdom and the capability to forgive others because we have been forgiven. Let's pray. Father, this morning our prayer is, we thank you for the forgiving power and blood of Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you for those of us who have been redeemed and who have accepted your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. We thank you, even though we don't deserve it, that we have been saved and we have eternal life with you in your house. And our prayer is this morning that there may be someone who has listened to this message that you have primed and prepared, that your Holy Spirit is speaking to them in this very moment, and they have resisted because, not that they don't want to be with you, not because they don't love you, not because they, they feel like, well, yes, probably because they feel like you won't forgive them. Help them come to that point where they will resign. They will surrender in humility. They will let the barriers and the walls of pride crumble, and they will step into faith, into your, into, your, into your Son, Jesus Christ, and accept Him as Lord and Savior. We pray these things in His name. Amen.